Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fifth IPS Nathan lecture series. Uh, the SR Nathan Fellowship for the Study of Singapore, as the fellowship is officially called, was established in 2014 to pay tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, Mr. SR Nathan. Uh, his selfless dedication to public service continues to inspire generations of people in the public service to imagine a better tomorrow and a better nation. This fellowship aims to promote greater discourse on public policy and governance. It is held on the university campus um, and, um, and it seeks to advance public understanding and stimulate discussion of pertinent national issues to engage the minds of young Singaporeans and students. And actually that's the term of the fellowship, but almost all, invariably the bulk of the audience um, look like me rather than, <laughs> rather than my than my son. Um, we managed to raise $6 million, um, including the matching grant uh, from the government to endow this fellowship. And I would like to thank individuals as well as corporations, including those who give to IPS on an annual basis as uh, part of our corporate fellow associates program for their support and generosity in funding this fellowship. Our fifth fellow is Dr. Chong. She is our first female fellow and naturally the first who actually did something in her life and built, <laughs> <laughs> built something. <laughs> the rest, like I forgot, one of them is here, uh, <laughs> um, talked and theorized. Um, since 2010, Dr. Cheong has been Chief Executive Officer of the Housing Development Board and and it's a very, very important position, and uh, I can express my personal admiration for her, um, and she is a very highly skilled, and as you will discover soon, a very charismatic personality. Um, she's, since uh, 2010, as I said, uh, she has been overseeing the management of some one million public housing flats in 26 estates in Singapore. She is actually our largest uh, landlord. Um, prior to that, she was the Chief Executive Officer of the Urban Development Redevelopment Authority, or URA. In her time at URA, not many people realize this, she played a key role in the planning and development of major growth areas, including Marina Bay and also the Tianjin Ecocity. Dr. Cheong will deliver a series of three lectures titled Seeking a Better Urban Future to articulate the complexities that governed and that confront a city-state like Singapore. Singapore, this is um, something that I've said before, um, is a country as well as a city. We don't always keep this obvious fact foremost in our minds, we forget, but there is no country beyond this city. This city is all the country that we have. This fact informs consciously and unconsciously, and should inform every facet of our existence. And in particular, it informs the management and the planning that goes into maintaining this city. It involves prioritizing among our needs, adapting and exploiting new technologies, and having a clear-eyed conception of the trade-offs involved in planning. 
Dr. Cheong will begin by examining lessons in today's lecture from inspiring cities to investigate what makes the city successful. She will proceed to give two other lectures after this. Um, unlike previous years, this year we have had two SR Nathan Lectures Fellows instead of one. Um, each of them gave three lectures. Next year, we will revert to a one SR Nathan Fellow for the whole academic year. And uh, I won't announce the identity of that fellow today, but I will do so at the end of this lecture series. So without further ado, may I introduce Dr. Cheong. Well, good evening, everyone. First, I must express my deep appreciation that you showed up even though it was raining, so thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, before I start, I'd like to say uh, something about uh, President Nathan. Uh, I had the great opportunity to have interacted with him and worked with him. And uh, I must say he has always shown great interest in urban issues. He was often very enthusiastic and supportive and very encouraging when we shared with him a lot of the ideas and projects that we had. So I think delivering these lectures as a fellow under his name is a very great honour for me. So I'm very appreciative. Now, obviously I'm going to talk about cities because cities face many challenges today. And I've devoted this series of lectures to a discussion on cities and urban life. And... Uh, the underlying theme for my lecture series is Seeking a Better Urban Future. And under this theme, the lectures are going to be organised into three major topics wrapped about around urban issues in order of descending scale from macro, which is what I'm going to cover today, more global, to a more local national scale, and finally, in our backyard. So you have to attend all the three lectures, because some of your questions might be in the second and the third lecture. And of course, I'll be speaking through the eyes of an architect planner, and naturally, the topics will lean more towards the physical aspects of cities. So let me launch this first lecture, examining some cities from around the world. So the topic is, what makes a city successful? Lessons from inspiring cities. Well, John F. Kennedy once said that, we will neglect our cities to our peril, for in neglecting them, we neglect the nation. And really, President Kennedy's words carry deep meaning because today, more than half the population of the world live in cities. And the urban population will grow from 4 billion in 2015 to 6 billion by 2045. Two-thirds will live in cities, and today there are already 28 megacities. A megacity has at least 10 million inhabitants. And by 2030, the number of megacities will grow to 41. Tokyo is going to be the largest at 37 million inhabitants, followed by Delhi with about 36 million. But rapid urbanization brings many problems for cities. There won't be uh, enough utilities and facilities and services to meet demand. And many cities will be gridlocked and choked with pollution. And of course, not enough housing and lots of income inequalities. Uh, and you have almost a billion urban poor who live at the fringes of cities in informal settlements. In more mature cities, you will see aging infrastructure. They pose dangers and risks. And in the more developed economies, there's a demographic changes. We're all aging. 
Climate change will also put cities to the test. Uh, cities consume about two-thirds of the world's energy and accounts for 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's critical that we develop cities in a sustainable and environmentally responsible manner. Now, on the other hand, this is from the World Economic Forum. Cities are really engines of growth, generating over 80% of the world's GDP. If you look at the, the, the circles, all right, each big circle represents the GDP of a country. And within that are the GDP contributed by specific cities. So London accounts for almost half of Britain's GDP and the Boston, New York, Washington corridor and Greater Los Angeles account for about one third of America's GDP. And actually cities can provide amenities in a very efficient manner because of its compactness. So if you manage well, actually cities can be engines of growth for the world. This is Jamie Lerner, one of my favourite personalities. He's a former mayor of Curitiba, and he said, cities are not the problems, they are actually the solutions. So if cities are the symbols of hope and development for humankind, then we must find innovative solutions to help them to overcome the challenges. Singapore shares many similar challenges with other cities, but on top of that, we are operating under severe land and resource constraints. We have been a strong advocate of sustainable development for the past 50 years, mainly out of necessity. And we have an interest in the development of urban solutions and learn from successful cities. So in 2008, URA and the Civil Service College set out to develop a unique Lee Kuan Yew World City Prize, which honors cities which create livable, vibrant, sustainable, and uh, urban communities. I had the privilege of being involved in conceptualing the prize when I was in URA. And I've served in a nominating committee since its inception. And we, when developing the prize, a key question really was, what are the attributes of successful cities to which the world and Singapore can learn from? There is no lack of plans in the world. I visit many, many cities and talk to counterparts, but they're all in the drawer. They never get implemented because there's often a lack of direction, weak planning processes, lack of financial and institutional capacity to realize these plans. And of course, the politics come in because constant political changes and lack of political will means that you can't implement many of these plans. So when we conceptualize the prize, we wanted to try and distill what's so special about these cities that make them successful. So, when you apply for the prize, actually it's a very difficult prize to win, you know. You cannot nominate yourself. Someone has to nominate you, and a credible third party, eh? not your friend. And the submission criteria we require to submit a lot of things. First, about leadership and governance, so we understand the city leader's role and governance processes in your city. We want to know the key urban and policy solutions. Ah, but are they impactful? Do they last? Are they durable? Are they sustainable? And do they really result in urban transformation? And are they replicable? Can we learn from you? And of course, it's about making sure that the plans are integrated with the regional and metropolitan level. Why? Because cities actually exist within a larger context. Not us, eh? we're a city in a country and the country is a city. But for everybody else, it's not like that. You really need to tie up with uh, levels at the metropolitan and the regional level. 
We also look at the level of effort. How much effort did you put in? And we also seek out cities with high innovation. So a lot of uh, criteria and you have to submit a lot of data. You can't be great just because you say you're great. We will look at employment data, whether the lives of the citizens have improved. So today, the Lee Kuan Yew World City Prize is a biennial international award and we are currently in the fifth award cycle. In the past decade, we received about 170 submissions covering six continents. And so far, the prize has been awarded to Bilbao, New York City, Suzhou, Medellin, and two weeks ago, I announced Seoul as the 2018 winner. It's a young prize, but I must say it's grown in stature because the top global cities actually apply for this prize. So we are quite grateful. Tales of inspiring cities. Each of the city really tells an inspiring story. They do share certain important traits and best practices that which have led to their success. So in this lecture, because of the limited time, I'm only going to focus on the laureate cities, the winning cities, because we actually had special mentioned cities which are also very good, but we have no time to cover them. Now, I'm mindful that each city varies. They are different in scale, population, level of economic development, and each really have a very distinct historical, cultural, and political context. But still, uh, I think there are certain traits about them that I hope to be able to pull out. So, of course, New York is very different, right? Mega city, big economy, compared to Medellin, who is just uh, emerging type of city, struggling with basic infrastructure and amenities. The, so let's have a look at some of the, what I think I observe as some key lessons from them. The first is, they all plan long-term with implementation in mind. And many of them actually shift away from this traditional blueprint master plan towards very long-term strategic planning approach. This approach is generally very forward-looking, very long-range, and they look at broad frameworks and spatial ideas. So being strategic means that you don't plan to the nth degree, but you have selected aspects that are important to meet overall objectives. Uh, so generally, the planning goals are about sustainable development and spatial quality. Now, the plan is also linked to regional plans. So there's a cascading of plans or planning thought down regional to your national and to detailed implementation plans. And a lot of input is taken from stakeholder and community uh, because that's important to align the plan with what people want. At the same time, these cities are mindful that the plan must be institutionally embedded so that you can give it a highest chance of implementation. So I'm going to take you on a trip around the world. So first, let's go to Bilbao. We all love Spain, right? Bilbao is a small city in Spain. And it was a port city that gradually saw the decline of its industries in mining, steel, and shipbuilding along the river in the 1970s. And they had a very bad flood in 1983, and they reached a crisis point. To turn the city around, the city administration prepared the Bilbao General Plan in 1989. It sets out to reorganize and modernize all the major industries and infrastructure. Now, Bilbao drew up comprehensive plans to systematically execute 25 projects over 25 years. I'm not going to run through all the 25 projects, but they cover many things, environmental improvements to the river, the airport, transport infrastructure, and they also injected design, art, and culture to rebrand itself. 
Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later. And this made the city much more attractive to investors, and it systematically transformed the city. For example, the land along the river, this was what it was before, they completely changed it into a knowledge-based and digital economy. They changed the type of users there. And that's what it looked like if you visit Bilbao today. They have a small population, about 430,000. Uh, and what it did is it positioned itself as the downtown that serves the entire Basque country. And this effectively extended its influence to reach a larger population of 2 to 3 million within a 300-kilometer radius. So if you look, they had all the railway lines running through, they decked over and completely changed the city, put in parks, beautiful boulevards, again, railway lines, completely changed. The riverfront used to be not very nice, now you can take a very nice stroll along the riverfront and they completely rejuvenated the historical districts. If you haven't visited, actually you should visit Spain, they have a lot of lovely cities, this is one of them. Now, beyond just paper plans, the new institutional arrangement was set up called Bilbao Ria. This is one of the secrets to the success of the plan. It was established in 1992 by then Mayor Inaki Ascuna, a wonderful man who was the founding chairman. And this was a very important organization that oversaw the development and integration of all the sites back into the fabric of the city. They had many partners, Housing Ministry, Bilbao Port Authority, railway companies, and the Bilbao City Council. Now, you read a lot about Spain. You can imagine how difficult it is to get everyone to agree. Different ownership, different national government, Bilbao state. But this organization managed a lot of internal conflicts and brought the city forward. So, very important. The right institution structures are in place. Next, I'd like to talk about the importance of harnessing the power of partnerships and engagement. Most of the winning cities you find, they act to build social capital in governance structures. So many adopted participatory processes, and what they do is they engage the community. There's a lot of conversations because it multiplies the effectiveness and impact of a policy and program. So the new plans tend to be more bottom-up rather than top-down. And so, because so many people are involved, it has taken into consideration the needs of many, many interest groups. So, planning is political. So, there's a political aspect to planning. So, increasing public-private partnership was also important because some cities had no money, right? Money, not enough. And so, by doing so, you latch onto the private sector to contribute the resources. So, private investments became very important to help to rejuvenate the city. So, let me now fly you to a city which you like, New York. New York is an amazing city. I know someone here who goes to New York all the time. Now, how many of you have been to New York in the 1980s and the 1990s? Many here. And you know what I mean, right? That's New York in the 1980s, 1990s. You do worry where you walk. It was high crime rates and there was a lot of disintegration. And in fact, the population shrank by 800,000. city shrunk. So the 1990s marked the first signs of turnaround when you have former mayor Rudolf Giuliani. He managed to make the city safer and improve education and social service. 
Then came along Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who was mayor for quite long, about 10 years. And he focused on improving infrastructure, he reclaimed industrial sites, he renovated the old and created new parks and public spaces, and he partnered many, many organizations. Michael Bloomberg can be credited with Plan NYC. This was a, a, a plan, a very consolidated comprehensive plan. It's the city's first plan, which addressed land, water, transportation, energy, air, climate change, to prepare New York for a more sustainable future. It was released in 2007 and then uh, updated in 2011. It had 132 initiatives, you know, and New York was anticipating an additional population of 1 million. Now, the plan came after extensive public consultation with many, many groups of people. In fact, 10 years ago, I visited New York and I was briefed by a very young lady with a very young group of people. And she told me that, well, because this plan was pretty much bottom-up and it was deliberate because once you have established such a broad base of support, it's likely that the plan will be, there's longevity to the plan, which will last beyond Michael Bloomberg's administration because the people wanted it, right? So that's very important. And Bloomberg also established the Mayor's Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability. And this office, again, the institutional structure, very important, helped to implement the plan. And they monitored the plan very systematically with a reporting system back to the citizens. Very important. Now, New York very cleverly tapped on the private sector, right? New York is very good at this, to inject innovation. And a highly successful example is the High Line. Some of you have been on the High Line. It's a project that actually started uh, as a citizen-led initiative by two young people from an interest group called Friends of the High Line. Because actually New York wanted to demolish the elevated railway line, but people wanted to keep it. And subsequently, Mayor Bloomberg agreed and it was developed as a much-needed public space for New York. Actually, what's our equivalent? The railway line, all right? The one that URA is looking at, but that's not elevated. And this is actually a very small one, you know? The one we have is much larger. So the city authorities were very clever. They then capitalized on the High Line to rejuvenate the districts adjacent to it. Now, they had the High Line, and they wanted to keep the buildings, the urban designers wanted to keep the buildings lower next to the High Line, but there is a lot of prime value there. So they allowed the developers to transfer the plot ratio to another piece of land so that you maintain the real estate value of this piece of land, but you can build elsewhere. But then from the planning and urban design point of view, it's still quite a nice scale. All right? So those of you who have not visited, go walk on the High Line. It's fantastic. Uh, so, it's, so the city government was also very business-like. They understood what makes developers tick. So very important. So the investment of 160 million uh, funds have led to private investments of almost $2 billion because on both sides of the High Line, it's now been built up and uh, by all well-known architects. It's a joy to walk along the High Line and see all these fantastic buildings uh, that have been built. Now, Plan NYC, sorry, this was the slide uh, which shows the new buildings. Now, Plan NYC also pushed to recover public space by reducing roads. When I first heard that they were going to shut down part of Times Square, I couldn't believe it, because those of you who've been to Times Square will know what I mean, right? 
But they did. They did. It's now pedestrianized. And they also can't believe it, right? With all the congestion. Can now sit in the middle of the street, you know? And there are also many, many miles of cycleways. Who would ever believe you could cycle it in New York? But they did it, right? And of course, there's a lot of redevelopment, including Brooklyn Bridge Park. How many of you have been at Brooklyn? It's not quite a place you really want to go, but now it's actually beautiful. The park is along the waterfront. And they had a lot of interest groups that helped them, uh, like the Brooklyn Bridge Park Corporation. It's actually a non-profit entity. So New York is very good at getting the private partners to build and fund and maintain a lot of these things by giving them sub-concession in the city property in exchange for maintenance responsibility. So see the transformation from what it was before. Beautiful. And of course, Mayor Bloomberg is also a strong supporter of the business improvement districts called BITS. We've just started that here in Singapore too. And basically, BITS comprise of all the commercial retailers there and they say, look, we were taxed ourselves. Wow, isn't that wonderful? They tax themselves to improve the area, uh, to make it cleaner, safer. And they will use this money to deliver services and improvements beyond those provided by the city for, say, cleaning or running events. Okay? Now, I'll bring you to a different city now. Let's go and visit Seoul. All of you who watch Korean dramas, huh? Uh, well, Seoul is a dramatic transformation from top-down planning to ground-up. Prior to 1990s, actually the Korean cities were very top-down in the planning. Everything was done by the national government. But by 1990s, the city leaders were given more autonomy. At that time, they had a lot of problems. Congestion, they had to upgrade infrastructure. But people resisted the change. So the city leaders realized that they need to go through a big engagement process with people to make those changes. So they reversed the top-down policy and made a lot of things bottom-up. Right. The formulation of the Seoul Master Plan 2030 is seen as the turning point in Seoul's planning process. So in 2009, uh, the mayor was given the power to do this plan. And under the leadership of Mayor Park Won-soon, the city made participatory planning its primary focus. You may not be able to read this, but if you have time, you can go and find out more about the Seoul Plan. The planning process was very much a citizen-led process. It's facilitated by top-level uh, commitment. They have hundreds of citizen engagement sessions to prepare the plan. What I found very amazing was this. They actually formulated a set of conflict management strategies and they have a team of dedicated, trained negotiators from the Seoul Metropolitan Government to help the city to win over even the most reluctant people and to seek a resolution and way forward. I want to hire some of these people. And they empower the citizens. They even set aside a small city budget for the citizen to decide what to do with it. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of MOF. Eh? I'm just saying this is what Seoul did. And uh, for greater accountability, they report back to the citizens on what the, the, the plan has done on a yearly basis. So there was accountability. Now, this was a very important process because they had to do many very difficult catalytic projects which involved the painful decision of removing roads from the city. We also get a lot of those debates. So, for example, this is Chong Yi Chong Stream. 
in 1960s. Look, Seoul was like that, you know. Could you believe it? Those have visited Seoul. Now, there were, then what happened is because the city developed, they went to build a highway along this river, right? That was a path of least resistance. Take away the river and build the highway. Then they decided that, gosh, we really need to improve the city and they want to restore the river. So they removed the highway to bring back much-needed public space. And lo and behold, beautiful. This is what it looks like. And the entire area is rejuvenated. I visited it recently. I was there about 10 years ago when they first did it. All they did was the river, both sides very dilapidated. But this became the catalyst that completely is starting to rejuvenate the entire area. Solo 7017 was a conversion of the Seoul station overpass into a one-kilometer-long, lushly planted elevated walkway. It was just open. So again, giving more back to the pedestrian, removing roads, right? Yongsei Row Mall. Now, this was what it looked like in uh, Yongsei Row, where it was really chaotic, all right? Uh, this project, I call it road dieting. Um, they removed the cars and gave it back to the pedestrian. And today, you can go there and play the piano. So quite a wonderful place. Next, cities actually focus on improving the quality of life on their agenda. They want to ensure greater inclusiveness and reduce inequities. I remember uh, Harvard professor Alan Altshuler when he was here in the um, LKY school. He said, in order to achieve prosperity, Every city must provide incentive for investment, hard work, and entrepreneurship. While a degree of inequality is inevitable, extreme inequality devastates the lives of those at the bottom, leading to ill effects on health, crime, lack of community spirit, and could threaten social stability. So for many of the winning cities, the starting point was they must recognize the need to tackle very deep-rooted issues in their social fabric, such as lowering crime rates, putting in place programs to build a more inclusive city, and providing more equal opportunities for all. So improving the quality of life is high on their agenda. Let's visit, visit Medellin. Where's Medellin? It is the second largest city of Colombia and it tells the compelling story of a city which transformed itself from a notoriously violent city. Do you know that Medellin was actually called the homicide capital of the world? Nobody wants to go there, and all the movies will show all the drugs and all the problems, right? It's completely changed, well, not completely, but it's done very well as a model of urban innovation. And over a sustained period, multiple leaders actually demonstrated the willingness to tackle very deep-rooted problems. They had a wealth division, lack of equity and opportunities, high crime rates, lack of proper housing and infrastructure. So what they did is, they did a plan. I'm a planner, so I love people who do plans, right? They did this plan uh, called the Strategic Plan of Bandaging and Metropolitan Area 2015. It was conceived long ago, 1980s, 1990s. So you see how long it takes. They intervened by building roads, parks, public spaces, and then they tried to get better access to public transport, jobs, education, public spaces. And the land use plan of Medellin, another plan, was introduced in 1999 and revised in 2014. It became the roadmap for the city till 2027. And they did many interventions. Let me introduce Medellin. Now, geographically, Medellin actually is landlocked. 
in the Columbia's Abura Valley and runs between two mountain ranges at the northern uh, end of the Andes. And over the decades, if you look carefully, a lot of people started to live along the sides of the mountain huh? because they can't afford to live in the city. So there's an uncontrolled spread of the barrios up the mountainside. And the landslides killed many people now and then, and there was high crime rate there because there were lack of opportunities. So to alleviate this isolation, what they did was they built the world's first cable car mass transport system called the Metro Cable. It ferries 38,000 people a day for less than a dollar a ride. This is not the Sentosa cable car, all right? But it's a great idea. And then they don't have a lot of money, so they went to take all these old mall escalators and install them on the hillsides to reach the people there, especially the elderly and the children. Why? Because now they can get to the city because that's where all the jobs and the amenities are, right? Simple interventions. And my friend Jamie Lerner calls this urban acupuncture. Poke, poke, poke here and there, but it, it solves the problem. And they also built a new tram line using very old tram cars that were retrofitted. So these cable car and tram systems, uh, which are being expanded, they really offer very vital connections for people to public transport, giving accessibility to the city. And to address the environmental uh, and social risks of informal settlements, because up the mountain you can just keep spreading you know, the slums. They had around it, they created what we call a green belt, called the Circumvent Garden. One thing good, they are very good at the names. You know? This is really a green belt, and it puts a halt to the spread, the urbanization that spread up the mountain. And what do they do with it? Actually, there are a lot of pathways that allow the barriers to link up. And along there, what they do is put in a lot of facilities like um, sports facilities to give access nearer to the informal settlements there. And they found that the key to good governance is actually through social innovation. So they had this uh, Parenticia, a non-profit organization uh, of private businesses who serve as a platform for government to work together and formulate policies and execute many, many small little interventions and initiatives. So they introduced this thing called the Articulated Life Units. They're essentially neighbourhood-level urban interventions. They open up new public space, encourage citizens to interact with each other, provide a forum for sports, culture and recreation. So for example, even this, um, this uh, big water tank was converted for community facilities. They worked with a utility company. And the library parks double up as social nodes. In another area, they had Moravia. This was a very bad waste dump occupied by thousands of families. So they transformed this barren landfill into the Moravia Garden. And this was all done by the community, ground up. All right? And now they have moved on, they've improved. They are facilitating the development of a new technological district called Medellin Innovation District, which will generate about 28,000 jobs by 2023. So all these initiatives focus on providing equal opportunity, social inclusion to generate a positive outcome. The city of 3.7 million inhabitants has now reduced its homicide rates from 92% since 1991, from
from about 368 homicides per 100,000 inhabitants. Quite frightening, you know. They've reduced it now to 28.9 per 100,000 inhabitants in 2015. To us, that is still very frightening. But to them, it's a great improvement, right? And the unemployment rates have been cut from 23% in 1990 to 10.2%. And extreme poverty fell from 19.4% in 1991 to two point, uh, just over 2% in 2015. Great improvement. So, Medellin's brand of urbanism really serves as a beacon of hope for many developing cities. They took a finite amount of money and made improvements for the maximum number of people. And the shift was from building buildings to providing access. Now, I think the next lesson we can learn is beyond just two-dimensional land use planning and infrastructure, many of these successful cities lay on what I call a multi-dimensional catalyst to ensure very high environmental spatial quality to enrich the city's attractiveness. They use culture, heritage, good design, urban design, placemaking, programming. They are all deployed innovatively to enhance identity, vibrancy, and city pride. And these elements are also used to differentiate themselves to give each city a very unique character. Back to Bilbao. Bilbao has exceptional success in the use of culture and design to regenerate the city. The strategy was to bring in international arts and culture as a symbol of transformation. High standards of design is what they look for in execution of urban projects. So one of the first projects commissioned, I see many architects here, probably give me the answer, was the development of the Guggenheim Museum by Frank Gehry, which opened in 1997. It became a key tourist attraction and spawned a series of tourism and hospitality-related industries. Now, this is called a culture-driven strategy. It became so successful that internationally, we now call it the Guggenheim Effect. I must tell you, when I was on the jury panel, one of the things I worried about was people think that Bilbao, we gave the prize because of the Guggenheim Effect. Actually, we gave them in spite of the Guggenheim Effect because it would be too narrow to think that they became a great city just by injecting the Guggenheim. It's not. But it was all the things I shared with you just now about institutionalizing their plan, very systematic implementation over 25 years. So that is just as important. But this was important. And what I love about the Spanish cities like Bilbao is they use design to drive the physical improvements to the city. If you arrive at the airport, you have this beautiful airport designed by Calatrava and beautifully done, all right? And Norman Foster was actually commissioned to create the signature glass entrance to its metro network and is affectionately, affectionately named after him as the Fosteritos. So sweet, right? I think of what to call our MRT stations. And the subway stations are simple and elegant and beautiful, as you can see, right? Sometimes less is more. Even bridges are beautifully conceived. And these elements bring about unique character, charm, and branding to Bilbao. Now, bring you back to Seoul. This one most of you like, ladies. It's Dongdaemun. Some of you smile because that's where you're going to shop, all right? But Dongdaemun wasn't like what you know it to be today. It was a manufacturing sector 
which was declining. And they decided to redevelop it as a hub for culture, fashion and design, looking at it not very inspiring. So what did they do? Well, they brought in Zaha Hadid to do this project called the Dongdaemun Design Plaza. Actually, it looks, I don't know what it looks like, but <laughs> it surprises you, right? And it's a cultural hub for art, design, technology, all right? And it's linked to a landscape park, and they needed a park. All right, to inject a green lung back into the city. And it's beautiful. I was walking around it and you, you should visit it. All right? Okay, ladies, you can shop, but please do visit the design plaza. All right? But I must add that good design is not necessarily about new, expensive, large and iconic building interventions. All right? It's not about that. Good design can be put to good effect to improve even day-to-day -day urban infrastructure. So this project is interesting. It's called Maker City Siwon. Uh, what it does is, this Maker City Siwon is a long, long building, seven street blocks. And what they did is they linked together the seven super blocks, all right, through a very sensitive insertion of a new linear space to incubate young entrepreneurs. So all they did was put in this simple link at the second level, and now you can walk through seven city blocks. It reminds me of, you know where? People's Park. So it's like People's Park, except they injected this youthful energy to People's Park. So it's quite an interesting project, all right? And that's what it looks. They have a lot of little new injection of uh, interesting spaces. The other one is the Mapo Culture Depot. It's a conversion of a disused oil tank into cultural venue and public space. So it's a beautiful oil tank. You go there. And what they converted the interior. You can go there for performances. It's also an art gallery. All right. So it's about repurposing, repurposing existing infrastructure. Okay, next I bring you to beautiful Suzhou. Suzhou is a lesson for us in preserving heritage and tradition. It's a shining example of how heritage and tradition can be preserved in the midst of rapid city growth. And Suzhou is Gone, undergone a remarkable transformation. Now, Suzhou, of course, benefited from Singapore's experience and contributions in 1990s. But I hasten to add that was not why we gave them a prize. Okay? Because since then, they have independently prepared new master plans uh, and completely propelled the city forward. All right? It's remarkable, the change. Because I have been to Suzhou many years. I was involved in Suto's early, early development, but it's been transformed. Now, again, Suto's city master plan was drawn up in 2003. See the importance of planning, eh? To realise smart growth by increasing the city's livability while preserving its culture and heritage. And they, they have developed a master plan, which actually has several master plans. They developed a land use plan, an industrial development plan, the eco-environment consideration plan, a water protection plan, and a heritage preservation and restoration plan. So many multifaceted. Now, Suto has stood out as a city that recognised the importance of cultural conservation. So to preserve the old city, which comprised the city core, I'm going to blow this up, they redirected urban growth pressure to a new Tingti Lake Central Business District. So the historical core is actually here in red. So they redirected the growth away to relieve the pressure from the center core. 
All right, and they have uh, the Chinese love to have all these numbers, one core, four cities. I think if you read a lot of Chinese plans, you, you understand that. So the growth is channeled to four districts called the Central and Business District, the Livable Smart Eco City, High Speed Rail Innovation District, and the Taihu Lake Knowledge District. So, for example, what they did was they pushed the new CBD into this area. This is affectionately called the torchlight because this was the plan developed by URA many years ago when I was in URA. It's still a torchlight. Huh? They kept pretty much to the plan and they have really developed it and the industrial area. So they have really relieved the pressure from the old city. And uh, they built a pretty beautiful uh, a new CBD, right? And uh, of course, the Heritage Preservation and Restoration Plan is put in place and they have kept the Pingjiang Historic uh, District. Very beautiful. I think those who have been to Suzhou, you will really appreciate the, the, the tradition and culture. Very beautiful. And they didn't only keep the buildings, you know, there's a living community there. So if you visit them, people actually live there. So you might get run down by a bicycle, but people do live there. And they also captured the natural features in the surrounding. Huh? They capitalized on the lakes, the green woods, the mountain ranges to improve the environment and the sustainability. And they went back to restore some of the eco-sites. This is a, a Stone Lake Scenic District, so very beautiful. So by leveraging on its 2,500-year-old historical legacy, they really created a strong sense of place and created a city which is rich in both tradition and modernity. Okay, I shall move on quickly. Parks, public spaces, placemaking, all very important for a vibrant city. The winning cities all recognize you really need to have well-maintained public spaces and parks to promote health and well-being, relieve the high density, and create a strong sense of attachment and foster strong community bonds. Now, New York, you think New York is very dense, right? They've spent 3.8 billion US dollars to renovate and create new parks since 2002. Another 600 parks are in the pipeline. By 2030, New York will have upgraded and acquired 1,900 hectares of parkland and public space. And the goal is to allow every New Yorker to be able to live within 10-minute walk of a park. So actually, New York is quite a green city, you know, in spite of its denseness, which is our impression, right? Now, beyond just the design of physical space, successful cities promote this thing called placemaking. This means you take deliberate action to program activities in public spaces and parks. And these activities are usually led by the community. So a very successful example, and one of my favorite parks in New York is Bryant Park. It's very popular. It used to host the New York's Fashion Week. I don't know if it's still hosted there. But I know that Singapore Day was held there a few years ago. So everybody was queuing up for chicken rice there, I think. All right? Now, other cities do the same. Their public spaces are always very vibrant. Look at Chong Yu Chong Stream in Seoul, a lot of festivals. And Guggenheim Museum, you think it's such a serious museum that you go to, right? Well, Red Bull held an event there. Okay? Amazing, right? Maybe we need someone to jump down from Marina Bay Sands at the extension. Maybe. But do you know someone actually parachuted off when we first opened the building? All right? Okay. Building resilience. Very important, right? Because of climate change and adopting sustainability practice. 
Uh, I'm just going to cite one example, and I'm going to go to New York, all right? Uh, this topic is a very big topic. I will cover some of these in my second lecture, if you're interested. You have to come back. Uh, in New York, the Plan NYC actually aimed to cumulatively contribute towards the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 30% below 205 levels by 2030. I don't know about the new administration, whether they will still do that. But in recent years, post-Hurricane Sandy, New York City partnered with Rebuilt by Design to hold a Hurricane Sandy competition in 2014 and to adopt new research and design strategies to achieve greater resilience against environmental man-made risks. So in total, about 920 million US dollars has been allocated to six projects in New York, New Jersey, and Long Island to enable the construction and integration of key infrastructure elements to protect the coastal neighborhoods. So they have very innovative proposals for flood protection. And one of the ideas is to use a reef structure, as you can see here. This is the reef structure, all right, as a protection, but also to serve as an aquatic habitat. I don't know whether they're trying to bring back oysters here. So maybe that's a good idea. Now, the final learning lesson, I think, is about having strong leadership and good governance to lead and drive change. Benjamin Barber, the author of the book, If Mayors Rule the World, said that mayors are pragmatists who need to get things done. And mayors have the ability to lead, take action, and mobilize the masses. Actually, in the Laureate cities, and the special mentioned cities, the mayors played very key roles. They provide the foresight, and they proactively build up institutions and put in place good governance processes, regulatory structures, financing mechanisms that will ensure the continuity of the plans beyond the administration. So they cannot be short-term. They need to look longer-term. And they often champion and set in motion very strong private-public partnerships to finance and sustain the development projects. They are very passionate about their cause, and they build a very dedicated team around them. So if you look at Mayor uh, Inaki, he became mayor of, uh, uh, world mayor of the year in 2012. He was mayor for 10 years, and he established Bilbao Ria, as I explained to you, to align everybody. And he actually has a very good team around him. I've met them, and I've talked to them. Unfortunately, Mayor Inaki passed away. Uh, the year that we, they won, and then we held the uh, mayor's forum there, he passed away. And I still remember, we were at the Guggenheim Museum, and his apartment was across the river that you saw. And he was sick. He came to the balcony to wave to us, you know. And shortly after, he passed away. I have great respect for this man. And of course, Mayor Michael Bloomberg is the other great mayor. He served for almost 10 years, and he pushed many initiatives, and he strengthened the New York City's administrative structure. He, built it, he brought in very highly capable and dedicated commissioners for transportation, planning, parks, and recreation. And I've met them. They are very, very good people. Now that he stepped down, he actually started a consultancy and they're all working for him advising cities. <laughs> now, Medellin. The nature of cities in South America is unfortunately the mayors have very short terms. And that has always been a very difficult impediment for them. But Medellin, fortunately, successive mayors, even though they're not in the same party, 
carried on with the plans. So we used to have Mayor Animal Gaviria, who served from 2012 to 2015. Very charismatic, all right? And Mayor Federico Guterres have taken over from 2016. The amazing thing was, when we gave them the prize, that was when the mayors changed from Mayor Anibal to Mayor Federico. But guess what? They both showed up in Singapore to receive the prize and they both presented about their city. That's the point about passing on the baton, regardless of the party, and still doing good for the city. So that's quite amazing. Now, Mayor Park is the latest mayor. Quite an amazing man, totally committed to participatory planning. And of course, he used that mode to drive many of the difficult initiatives. He's very hands-on. Now, this picture was taken when I was sitting across from him because we had to interview him. So when I went to his office, he was very proud. Look at what's behind his desk. He had a whole wall of LCD panels and screens. We tell him everything that's happening in the city. Drainage, floods. Um, transportation congestion, all right? All the things you need to know. Actually, across from the screen, you have rows and rows of files. This is a very, very hands-on mayor. Now, if you look at his table, there's a chair here, right? He's the mayor, but he didn't sit there. Why? He explained to us that that seat is for the citizen. So the man seems to walk the talk. Huh? So recognizing that all the mayors are very important, uh, the Centre for Livable Cities and the URA, when they do the World Cities Summit, they incorporate the biennial Mayors Forum as a key anchor of the programme. It brings mayors from more than 100 cities around the world to come together to share experience and resolve new challenges. So, there you have it. This is what I think have been very important. I'll run through very quickly, just to refresh. We find that strategic vision and comprehensive long-term views are really prerequisites to successful development of cities. But to attain the long-term goals, you really need to develop detailed plans. It's not just rhetoric, all right? And then you need to institutionalize the process because politics and politicians change and people change. So you need to institutionalize. The principle is not about developing a planned city in a traditional blueprint mode but it is about a city that plans continually. Some of you may ask me the question, why plan? Things are always changing, you know. I'm a planner, I believe in plans, all right? But it's about a city that plans continually and change when you have to change. And in the world of increasing complexity and uh, lack of resources, you can't do it alone. You really can't just be top-down. It also has to be bottom-up. You need to harness uh, and gather uh, people to support you and including monetary resources from the private sector. You have to also secure ground support. And laid onto this is the adoption of very highly innovative ideas to catalyze development. So you need strategies wrapped around culture, heritage, good design, placemaking, programming that add depth to the city's image and brand and differentiate yourself from others. So when I Go on to the second lecture, I'll be touching on some of these things. And these catalysts really help you to develop your distinctiveness, to define your identity, to keep your social memories. And the cities are also mindful they must secure greater resilience. 
An overarching critical success factor is the emergence of very strong and often charismatic leaders. These readers create the moments of opportunity and vision which push the city on a trajectory of transformation. But no leader can deliver these plans on their own. They need a team of very dedicated and capable people who provide the ideas and the technical capability to deliver the plans. Just pronouncing that your city will be the best city in the world is not going to happen if you don't have these things in place. So, there is no perfect city, all right? I'm just going to run through this quickly. There are many academics in the room, and this might not pass muster with you, but in my view, if you look at the cities, they all have some strengths and some are stronger in some things than others. There's no perfect city. So, Bilbao, this is the way I look at Bilbao. When you look at New York, more on participatory. Suto, more on durability and sustainability and impact. Uh, Medellin. So each of these really have different strengths. I think this on its own can be the subject of a very interesting study, which I don't have time to go into. And all these cities are not perfect. They still have their problems. New York still have to figure out how to house an additional one million people. They have some very good new housing, affordable housing, but very hard to scale up. They don't have a HDB. Okay. That's the subject of the third lecture. <laughs> Medellin still has large segments living in informal housing. And one of the things is uh, like Bilbao also recently, they are still looking at housing. But sometimes I do worry because some of them start to, as they become better and richer, they start to channel a lot of money into very ambitious new projects high investments and maintenance. But you must remember, you've got to solve some of the basic issues, right? Because all the glam projects don't provide you with housing, you know? Right? And of course, aging infrastructure. All of us face that, right? Which we have to take care of. How about Singapore? I know you all want to ask this question. Well, although the cities are all work in progress, there's a lot we can learn from them. Actually, Singapore's experience mirrors much of what these winning cities have gone through. Our developmental success story from slums to modern metropolis stems very much from strong leadership with good foresight. Ours are not the mayors, eh? ours are the particularly Mr. Lee, right? Our leaders and decision makers took a long-term planning perspective. And today, our planning process is forward-looking and comprehensive to ensure that our plans are well-conceived. Our leaders have built very strong institutional capacity and competencies to ensure that our plans can be implemented. And you need a very disciplined governance process which provides certainty to businesses and a clean government that works for the betterment of the citizenry. From the day we became an independent nation, we recognised the importance of ensuring social equity and greater inclusiveness. So we have worked to reduce inequities, largely through a lot of transfers, through subsidised housing, education and health. And despite our resource limitations, we strive to develop in a very sustainable manner and put in high priority the goal to be a livable city. So, going forward, however, there will be many major trends looming. All right? trends and challenges that will pose significant risks, challenges and disruptions to cities. 
In my second lecture, I will explore what these trends and challenges are likely to be. And in particular, I will delve deeper into what these trends mean for Singapore and explore the potential urban responses that can better prepare us for the future. So what do we do? All these things are coming on to us, right? And finally, of course, I'll talk about our backyard, the future of heartland living. One of my things closer to my heart about HDB living. And therefore, this is a summary. We covered lecture one today. I made a small advertisement for lecture two, which will be on the 10th of April and Lecture 3, which will be on the 23rd of April. Now, the lectures are linked. I wanted to start with a global view because we need to understand what makes cities work, you know. And then we have to learn from this and then say, then how does it make it work for us, right? And then HDB towns do not exist alone. They exist in the context of Singapore as a nation. And Singapore exists in the context of the global world which will impose certain constraints on us, right? So sometimes when, maybe it's in the Q&A, when we talk about little things that we want, we must always understand the bigger context for us, okay? So I, I uh, thank you so much for your patience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kunian, for bringing around the world in 60 minutes. In 60 days. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. I think I was inducted into the uh, LKY Northern Company. I think it's indeed very interesting to actually see the other cities and to compare these cities uh, against um, Singapore, which I, I kind of want to kickstart this uh, uh, Q&A by asking you to maybe comment uh, and to review and, and think about Singapore in like the two lessons you mentioned. The lesson that I, I, I was referring to is uh, number two, harness the power of partnership engagement to ensure implementation and whether or not we fare well in, in this uh, lesson. And also the last one that I was uh, uh, wondering and that you could comment is building environmental resilience and adopting sustainable practices. I think these are the two that I'm particularly uh, interested in because I think that the others, which is very clear, we have done very well. You want me to answer now? Okay. Subject of my second lecture. <laughs> <laughs> but I will uh, touch on it a little bit. Is that better? Okay. All right. Power of uh, partnership and engagement. I must say we're pretty much like Korea, right? We also went through a, a, a process over time in our planning approaches. And I spent some time in, of course, URA uh, uh, in my career. And I could see the change. I must say that in the earlier days, maybe two decades ago, maybe slightly more, uh, planning tends to be more top-down. 
right? And uh, maybe at that time also a lot of people didn't quite understand what planning is. So sometimes cities have to go to a certain phase. But by the time we did the concept plan 1991, I think we already knew we needed to do a lot more engagement. So I still remember uh, organizing many, many public consultations. We actually had town hall meetings and people commented on the plans. And I think as time went on, the engagement became even more and more. And some of you have participated in some of them. So even down to HDB, we are also doing the same. We engage the public a lot. And so does uh, the URA. And I think if you look at many of the agencies like PUB and all that, they are all doing a lot of 3P partnerships today. That's healthy. But we must also understand that engagement is actually a complicated process because you must understand who you are engaging and you must understand whether they understand what you are engaging them on. Uh, I won't go into the detail, but engagement is quite an art to really distill useful uh, things and feelings and inputs from people, right? Uh, different types of groups you engage using different modes to get the best inputs you can. Uh, the second question really is on uh, building resilience and sustainability. I absolutely agree, it's very important. Uh, I would say that we are very mindful now of this. Perhaps the world suddenly is because of climate change. The world was not very mindful of this several decades ago either. And so Singapore also has in place many of the, uh, for example, the sustainability blueprint, which brings together many of the efforts to put in place sustainability initiatives. So in that sense, we are a lot more mindful. As a city's island city-state, there are a lot of threats, you know. Island states with a lot of water around you, I think sea level rise is one of the most uh, uh, important issue to think about. And I think we have already started to put in place and are doing many studies to see how to mitigate. Actually, I'm going to cover this in my second lecture, how to deal with it. So if you're interested, uh, please come. If not, you have to read, read the lecture. Mm. Actually, that was what I was going to ask. The, the next question was, uh, the economist refers to Singapore as the only fully functioning city-state. And uh, Singapore being a city-state with limited land, uh, we don't have a hinterland. Do you think um, this is an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, life doesn't come in a nice package, right? Uh, I think the land constraint, land and resource constraint, we always know, since we're growing up, we've been told this, it is a constraint. And you cannot run away from it, right? It's like you, you are given birth in a family. The Chinese have a saying, that's it, you know? You, you cannot choose the family you're born into. Eh? So we cannot choose. We're here in Singapore. And you have to recognize the constraint. But on the other hand, City-states generally move very fast. Decisions can be made because it tends to be single-tier government. And I suppose you could be faster in your decision-making. You're also far more integrated in your decision-making. So you are more nimble and you can make those decisions. Uh, well, if you say, is it an advantage or not an advantage? Singapore has had all these constraints, but where are we today? Not bad. I think given all these constraints, we're not bad, right? Mm -hmm. So the key is how do we sustain that into the future? How do we think about it? Because uh, as we build up, you do face many challenges. 
second lecture. <laughs> no, I don't want to take up the time so that I let people ask questions. I shall open the questions to the floor. Please be concise with your questions. Um, yes, please. Could please, you identify yourself yes. so I know please, who you uh, are? Your Thank name you. and organisation, please. All right. I'm, uh, my name is Lily. Um, I'll just say I'm citizen. I'm retired sure, now. Great. Okay. Um, I've come to every single lecture. Oh. Uh, my So I'm I'm very happy to hear you speak. Um, I'm from Taiwan, Taipei, mm. and uh, I've but I've lived in Singapore for a long time, and and I I, I love the city. Um, and it's um, it's everything that that I mean. I grew up here, so it's it's a good place to be. But I can't um, help but think uh, of waste management, which I was hoping you, were, you would also talk about, but maybe that comes later. Um, every time I'm in Seoul and in Tokyo, I'm impressed by how big the city is and how well managed the waste management is. The back lanes are always very clean. I cringe every time my friends come to Singapore and they say, Singapore is so clean. And I keep thinking, well, you haven't seen some parts. So, you know, when you do your heartland talk, I hope you talk about things like the toilets and all that. And I, you know, Taiwan has just gone into this no plastic uh, um, kind of uh, ban. And uh, we, we really are not very clean. And I, I don't know what you've learned from the other cities, like Seoul, how they manage um, sort of rubbish, waste, trash. And what is it that they do with their communities that not deploy more, uh, not deploy more cleaners, but actually get people to move a certain way, helping ourselves? Thank Why you. So it's about waste management? Yep and how Singapore could um, be better. Okay, you Any want me to answer? Yeah. Okay, I think first I must say that I don't represent the government. Uh, I cannot change everything about the government. All right, I'm here with my own experience and I fully share your view because uh, I didn't give an example of one city which is quite amazing and that's Yokohama. When I visit, Yokohama is a special mentioned city. They didn't win because the competition is actually quite stiff, but they are an excellent city. And when I went to Yokohama, the thing that impressed me most is about waste management. And, you know, do you know how many types of waste they sort into every household? Make a guess. Seven? Good number? Any more? 20 plus, well, okay, that's quite a lot. <laughs> well, the answer is 15. And we can't even in HDB get people to just put one shirt recyclable, one shirt normal organic waste. So, Lily, sometimes when you ask me, why can't people do that? I also ask the same question. So it's not as if we, we can solve the problem. It's not a government problem. It's about the ethos of society. Right? I know in Taiwan, I watched the fantastic documentary. There's a very good documentary about how people deal with trash. And I think every day or every week, the truck comes around, it plays a music or ring a bell or something. Sounds like ice cream truck, you know, and this is a rubbish truck. And everybody brings down the trash. There is no chute for you to open and throw. There are not even bins that you could probably throw downstairs. But they bring their own and into the rubbish truck. And it became a social gathering place because everybody is bringing down their rubbish. 
Now, then my question posed back to you is, how do we achieve that as a society? In fact, my second lecture talks about a little bit about that. It's not about can the government do something about it, but how can we do something about it? And we can facilitate, but we need to work together, right? So Lily, if you have great suggestions, you should post the suggestions. <laughs> but Yokohama was amazing. Uh, the, the Japanese are very disciplined. But what they do is, uh, partly it's the nature of the culture. So I say, what happens if somebody don't bring up the trash in time for the truck to collect and don't sort out? You know what they do? The neighbours all look at you. Mm. So it's a little bit of a shaming method they use and people will feel, oh, the rubbish truck will not collect your rubbish. But here I can't because they just drop it into my, my common chute. I don't know who has dropped the rubbish in. <laughs> it's a practical issue. But you're right, I wish we could do more. And I suppose mastering community is very important in this. We are all in it together. Yes? Uh, thanks for a wonderful lecture and uh it gives us a very good perspective of how sustainable cities are ought to be. Uh, one of the challenges uh, you might have come across uh, would be uh, in Medellin perhaps. Uh, the way they, uh, you mentioned that they built the circumvent garden to uh, prevent urbanization from growing uh, more into the hilly areas. But then uh, what do you think? For example, in a, uh, where we see that global cities are facing more and more in migration. So how do cities tackle that? Because then uh, when you talk about citizen partner pa participation, how do you involve these citizens who have just moved into the city? Oh. Also, uh, there are challenges uh, as to ethical challenges as to can you displace them? Can you resettle them? And do you have spaces to resettle them? What are your priorities? So for example, if uh, the Chong, uh, the one example which you gave from Seoul, so uh, had it been that there are uh, property owners around that uh, river, then it would have been an altogether different uh, challenge because then you have to bring them on table. How do you uh, discuss the property rights? How do you resettle them? Where, where else do you take them? Will they agree to this? So all of this. So what do you think about uh, the in-migration, the growing population of cities? Wow, you have many questions. Yeah. I have to write a book on that. Okay. Um, the quick answer is because uh, I think you won't have time to address all, but mm. very broadly, I don't think there's one solution for every city. So, for example, in migration, every city faces the problem, and housing is one big issue, right? So, uh, many cities do different things. They, Medellin, just recognize the informal settlement. As long as the thing is not crumbling down, killing someone, they recognize it. In South America, because it's not a lot of resources, so there are many, like if you go to Curitiba, they will do uh, site and services. That means all the government does is bring in water and electricity. And then they let you build. And the people can afford to build one room at a time using, say, mud bricks. So over time, they break a house. All right, That's one solution. Another solution in big cities is they use the private sector and they say you have to set aside, say, 20% for affordable housing. But unfortunately, it cannot scale up. So I don't have an answer because it is a very, very big issue for most cities. But uh, tied to that is immigration. Uh, I did mention it because there wasn't time. I was very impressed with Suto for one thing. You know, in China, uh, they restrict the number of people coming to the city precisely for this problem you, you talked about. 
where you cannot get uh, the city just keeps growing, right? And then they have the the certificate. Without the the certificate, you cannot the come in, system, right? right? Uh, the hukou yeah. system. Mm. So in in Suzhou, they managed to give people who work in the city the rights to education and housing. It was quite amazing. How they do it, I don't know exactly, but what they did is they added in a lot more affordable housing. So there's no one answer. Every city depending on the resources. Uh, so I think I'll just stop there because you okay. might have, yes. I have other another, questions. Yeah. Thank yes. you. I have another question from uh, Go Chong Ming. Uh, Singapore is the only global metropolis located on the equator. Outdoors here are hot and humid. Have you come across ideas on tackling our hot outdoor environment? <laughs> I also won. <laughs> and I think uh, when Mr. Lee was alive, he used to say, you know, can you bring the temperature down, put a big dome around Singapore? Uh, I'm waiting for the solution. All right. Uh, I agree with you. And I think ST Engineering did something mm. recently, like they have this huge... Uh, I think the problem is scale, because actually in theory, what you should do in Singapore is you have dehumidifiers. Actually, if the dehumidifier can remove moisture from the air, actually, why you feel hot? Actually, it's not hot, no? it's sticky, it's because of the humidity, right? Because there are many other cities hotter than us. Uh, in theory, I mean, I visited some of the university labs. If you remove the humidity from the air, can you imagine? First, you feel cooler. Secondly, you collect the water and it can reuse. Good idea, right? Problem is how to scale up. Because all this takes a lot of energy. Having said that, you have to attend my third lecture. <laughs> because I think there are ways to plan in a, a, a good way to try to reduce the temperature a little bit and make use of the air that flows through the city. All right, That's my short answer. Uh, there is clever technology to help you to plan better. Not that the technology reduces the temperature, but by helping you to plan better, I think you can actually channel winds and breezes in a certain way. All right? Third lecture. So I think Singapore has done well through the greenery. And greenery. Yes. And the greenery. So I think Singapore is a lot My Empire's colleague will tell you that the greenery can bring the temperature down by a few degrees. Mm. And this is called the urban heat island effect. As we keep losing trees and then we put concrete and hard paving, it gets a lot warmer. So there are ways to plan and reduce the urban heat island effect in my third lecture. Mm. Right. Uh, hi, I'm Ong Sihai, I'm an urban planner. Hi, Sihai. Yes. Hi, Kuni. You know, you have the privilege of uh, knowing a lot of cities. I just want to ask the question, how can we distill all this knowledge right, into new master plan cities? Because a lot of countries, they always want to build the next Brasilia, Putrajaya, China next, Yongan, and you've done Tianjin. So how can all this be distilled so that when you do the next uh, new city, a master plan one, yeah. you got the best and it will work? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, there's no answer. <laughs> I've had, I have people coming to me asking me, can we distill the best of Singapore and then write it into like a formula and then you can apply it? Actually, you can't. So uh, what I like to say is, first, there's no perfect city. Secondly, there's no perfect formula. Because every city is different. So you notice what I mentioned is not a formula. I'm just telling you, it seems to be the lessons from this city, the best practices, you know. But you have to select carefully for your city. 
a solution for New York may not be the right solution for Medellin, right? So you, you need to have discernment. And see, hi, the problem is this. Cities don't become successful because of the master plan. And as I've outlined in my lecture, it takes a whole ecosystem, good leaders, institutions, good governance, right? You need a great plan, but you also need all these things that make it happen. Thinking, how do I finance some of these things? I didn't touch on financing, but this is a very difficult topic, right? So, it's not so easy. But you can do some, at least minimally, when you do the plan, from the spatial point of view, you can think about a lot of the good practices. But beyond that, you really need the whole ecosystem and uh, governance structure. I mean, when I did the Tianjin Eco City Master Plan, it was not easy because there are many people with many different ideas. And even after you've done the plan, you can have changing administrations. And the plan keeps changing. There are many cities that cannot keep to the plan. And I'm not saying you must keep to the plan because that would fix the plan. It's too inflexible. But at least when you change the plan, it's a rolling plan, you've got to remember some of the original intentions and objectives. I, I am old-fashioned. I believe in vision, you know. A lot of people come and tell me that, why do you even plan? Things are so complex. View curve world, right? So no need to plan. Just react as you go along. Uh, I don't subscribe to that. And I explain why in the second lecture. But because it's really actually quite difficult, uh, especially in the case of Singapore. When you're a city-state, you have limited land, you better plan because you cannot afford to make many mistakes. All right? So no simple answer, Sihai. All right? But there are certain spatial things that could be correct, right? We all know. You have the plan for growing population, you have the plan for housing, good infrastructure that supports the plan. Uh, and, uh, and a balance of recreation, greenery, right? Good infrastructure. These, these are all very basic things that all planners and architects know they must do. But I'm talking about beyond that. How, how do you get the thing going? Actually, that depends a lot on decision makers, the government, politicians, right? To drive the plan. Right. Hi. Hi, I'm Drew from IPS. So um, thanks for your lecture. You gave like five takeaways or best practices that we can learn from these cases of the cities, right? Um, and among them, you mentioned about how we must plan inclusively, right? Um, make sure that the city is inclusive. And you gave an example of Medellin for that. Um, but prior to that, you gave an example of New York. And you gave an example of High Line. Um, it's quite interesting because, I mean, as a tourist, I, I've been to, to New York and been to High Line. It's really, really impressive. Right, but it's always the consideration of what it means for the community, right? So I quote one of the co-founders of Highline, Robert Hammond. He says that uh, we were from the community. We wanted to do it for the we wanted to do it for the neighborhood, but ultimately we failed, right? Because at the end of the day, what happened in the Chelsea district is that the housing prices went up a lot. It got gentrified. Precisely. So yeah. my question to you is that you listed these five um, best practices, right? But in which of these cases, and how often? Are cities able to balance them? And if not, and if we do not balance them, then can we truly consider them to be successful or not? Yeah. It's difficult, all right? Again, no perfect city. Uh, that's one of the problems every city faces. Gentrification, right? Uh, Meatpacking district started great. I think it's become very expensive now, right? Uh, so it's inevitable because when people repurpose buildings, it's for that very reason that the creative class goes there because it's cheap, right? 
So when it happens, you have a problem. Uh, there is no easy answer. But there are cities that try to uh, ring fence. So startups is a good example, right? Startup has to do it in the backyard, you know? Or you have certain spaces now where you encourage startups and you have very cheap rental. But inevitably, there is the, the economic side of it. Uh, there's no real answer, but I'm saying that yes, gentrification takes place unless the government says you cannot build. But on the other hand, I think there's a problem. It's like conservation, right? Do you keep conservation exactly the way it is? But conservation needs to consider the economic side of it. If you cannot let the owner get economic value out of conservation, he has no money to restore the building. Who's going to pay for it? So it's a very, very fine balance. I've been asked this question many, many times. All right? And say, why don't you bring back the old trades and all that? My point is, firstly, will the old trades survive in this world? How many of you are going to buy the takya? Do you even know what's the takya, the, the, the wooden clock? None of you are going to buy, you know? All right? So governance is very difficult. You have to strike a balance. So some places, for example, uh, uh, Highline, all right? But the public can use it. It's a public space. So it depends on the definition of, for the community and gentrification. They needed the developments on the either side. They paid tax, good tax for the government to be able to prepare parks and public spaces. And if you go to the Highland today, it's free. Nobody charges you for it. Do, are the New Yorkers better off? Yes, because they now have a public space in the middle of New York. So no easy answer, but there are choices you have to make. There are trade-offs and you have to make the trade-off. There is no perfect world. In fact, one of the reasons I was asked, why do you give these lectures? Because I want to tell you there's no perfect world. <laughs> and you have to make those choices. All right? But in most governments, you do both, right? You've got to make money. You've got to let the, the economy make the money. But with the money, you then do the transfers, right? So in our case, there are transfers. You give to education, you give to health, housing. That's how governments work. Okay? Just a minute. I've got two questions here from Timothy Tan, but I'll, I'll just uh, pick one. You used Medellin as a case study, and could you comment more about the informality of the city and, Singapore can, and if Singapore can learn from its non-planning? They had a plan. Where's Timothy? Okay, never mind, Timothy. I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> they have a plan. So that's the whole point. They do have a plan. Now, here I like to, maybe, I think I know what Timothy is trying to say. It's about the plan versus the unplanned. So let me share with you my thoughts on that. You go down to Times Square and it looks pretty chaotic, right? Do you think it's planned? All those billboards that you see? It is planned. If you go and talk to them, they have rules this thick for you to use Times Square, the size of the billboard, how is the billboard going to be done? All these are planned because they want a certain vision and vibrancy. It's all planned. And the regulations are thicker than the ones we have here, I can assure you. All right? Now, it is called planned chaos. All right? It's planned chaos. So can I also address another misunderstanding about planned versus unplanned? 
There are some things that need to be planned, and these are the macro things when you deal with the city, the infrastructure, the broad land users, because you have to juxtapose a lot of these things and you have to make sure these things are available for the city. Right? These cannot be left unplanned. Where you put the airport, the port. So macro, you have to plan. But as you come down to the more micro and more local, this is where you can devolve a lot more say to the community because it's, it's right at the backyard. They can tell you what they like and what they don't like. But it cannot be a case whereby it's totally unplanned. How are you going to put a road through? How are you going to put an MRT line through if you don't plan it decades ahead of time? So I think when we talk about plan and unplanned, we have to understand at what scale are we talking about. Same as engagement. Certain types of engagement are actually very complex. You need more professional type of understanding to be able to give you a considered view. Other times, it's very easy. Everybody can give a view. Of course, everybody can give a view. But the very complex things, at, at, at the end of the day, you need to be able to solve the technical part of those things. And you, you have to plan it. All right? That's my not too long answer to the question. Hi, Dr. Cheong. Uh, my name is Daniel. Uh, I'm actually an urban planner working with the URA. Uh, I work in long-range planning. Uh, but uh, thank you for a, a very inspiring talk uh, about with five cities giving uh, very good examples of the concrete difference that plans and planning can make uh, to city life. Uh, I would like to uh, ask a question that was related to Timothy's, uh, which is, in your experience, um, Referring to these cities as well as uh, to Singapore's experience, uh, have there been instructive uh, lessons from planning mistakes? Things that we uh, uh, planned in good faith but it didn't turn out the way we thought, uh, but the, the, it was productive because we learned something about how the city works or it created a new opportunity for us to, to improve. You mean uh, Singapore or you mean the other cities? Uh, both. Okay. I would say for most of the cities, the shortcoming tends to be housing or lack of. Uh, because it's a very difficult problem to solve. Uh, usually you lack the funding, right? Uh, so I think, I think those are some of the weaker aspects of many of these cities, as you, you can see, uh, even from the uh, slides. Uh, and of course, sometimes uh, infrastructure, but that's because they don't have the money. They've got to find a way to do it. So I would say housing is one of the weaker aspects for many of these cities. And my own personal belief is that many cities, there's a lot of angst by the young people is because of housing, mm. all right? Uh, or lack of, lack of affordable housing. Uh, for Singapore, if you ask me what are the shortcomings, I'm mindful URA is here, and I was formerly from URA. <laughs> we learned along the way. Uh, I think what we can actually do better is participatory planning. But don't get me wrong. Eh? Participatory planning doesn't mean just go out and ask everybody, you know. It doesn't mean that. It also means you have to persuade people, right? It's not one way, you know. People tell you, I want this 1,000 things, and you have to say yes. It doesn't mean that because it's not possible. There are so many interest groups and so many voices, right? And uh, you cannot satisfy everybody. But the thing we can learn from Seoul is 
they have very good people who are able to discuss, to negotiate and to persuade. I think we lack that skill and something we can learn from. Okay, I think you are starting to do a lot of consultation. You know what I mean, right? There's a skill in... Actually, it's not about just consulting. It's also about persuading, right? It's about persuading. One of the most difficult things in most cities when I visit them, they tell me is, especially more developed cities, is actually the NIMBY attitude. It's not new, you know, everywhere you face them, especially in the more developed cities where income levels are higher, people are more educated, you know. So how do you have a good constructive conversation, get people to understand that actually sometimes it's for the greater good, like waste, right? Like mm. what Lily said. Now, those are the skill sets I think we're still honing. We're not terribly good at it, right? We're learning. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Okay. All good things must come to an end. So, Kunian, I give you maybe the last word to, to say to, to promote your next lecture. <laughs> uh, what are the uh, disturbing mega trends? Just a few, so that we can look forward to your next lecture. Well, for every challenge, there's always an opportunity. And I don't think it is... Uh, going to be so surprising to you all, right? We all, all cities are going to face things like demographic changes. Climate change will be there. Technology disruptions. Uh, I think these will be some of the types of challenges that we will face. And of course, for Singapore, we are completely open to the world, huh? the economy. Not especially now. <laughs> Nowadays, huh? there's a lot of uh, discussion about world trade and, you know, and we depend on the world to make a living. So I think the question is, of course, I speak from a spatial aspect. How do we plan a city to try to deal with some of these things? So that will be covered in my next talk. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Cheong and Mr. Wong. Registration for Dr. Cheong's next lectures will be open tomorrow. Details on our website. <laughs> we hope to see you then. Good evening to all and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome.